Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity, both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, something I'm increasingly fascinated by and is so often misunderstood. So little by little, I hope to build an archive of fascinating stories, experiences and tips to help you maximise yours. Today I'm joined by one half of Studio BND, but never dull, Ben Mottasen. Ben joins me to talk about neurodiversity, about the origins of the Studio BND, the importance of socialising face-to-face in human 3D for the creative process, and much, much more. Hello and welcome to the show, how are you doing? I'm going to keep these intros short because I've had a little bit of constructive feedback that maybe 17 minutes was going just a little bit too far on the autonomous rants. <laughs> I appreciate it. I got an iron chin. I've been freelancing for 14 years now, and um, I do appreciate the feedback, actually. It's certainly helped to hone me as an interviewer. Um, it's always welcome. As long as you're not a dick about it, it's always welcome. <laughs> I hope you're doing well, guys. I hope you're feeling creative. Jumping into it today with Ben Mottershead, one half of Studio BND, the brilliant but never dull. Uh, these guys are quite new to the game, and... Ben and I talk at length about a lot of things. We're going to be getting into neurodiversity, so this is a new thing on my radar. It's not a new thing. Do you know what? We'll get into that in a second. Just give me one moment. I need to thank the supporting founder of the show, Illustration X. You can find their wonderful array of global illustration and animation portfolios over at illustrationx.com. You can hit them up on social media. They're quite prominent at We Are Illustration X. Uh, like I said, they've been here since day one, helped get the show off the ground. I am currently looking for more partners at the moment. Once upon a time, I had three or four on any given episode. So anyone whose values sync with what I'm trying to do here, which is promote, champion, and spread the love of creativity for a better society, you know where I am. Hello at bentallon.com or hit me up on the social at bentallon. I'd love to do that. I can see a lot of things out there, a lot of brands, people who'd benefit from this sort of very passionate and valued listenership of people fascinated and in love with creativity. So let me know on that one. Um, so Ben Mottleshead, yeah. I hope you enjoyed recent shows, by the way, with um, Matt McArdle on the, the, the link between physical activity and mental health in these uh, dark, wintry, troubled times. We've got James Brown coming up, 90s publishing legend, former editor founder and creator of Loaded Magazine, former editor of GQ, former editor of 442 Magazine, um, creator and editor of Attack on Bazaar, a wonderful fanzine back in the 80s, which taught James his skills, enabled him to come to London and find himself as the features editor of NME by the age of 22. Legend if you know him, if you don't, shame on you, go away and read up on him. Um, absolute superstar, lovely guy, originally from Leeds, real success story and a real reminder of why we have to do things on our terms. Got that coming up. We've got a dancer and choreographer coming up who's going to be talking about, whoa, I mean, we, we get into a lot, but about the flaws in education that don't champion dynamism and different forms of intelligence and the links between movement and creativity and all this stuff it's a really great one so we've got that coming up and let's get into ben now so ben got in touch a little while back he's a a founder 
and one half of Studio BND, but never dull. And he got in touch and he mentioned a couple of topics he was apt to talk about. And one of those things that came up was that he's a ADHD. And we get into that. So I've been writing about that recently for the Creative Condition book. There's this whole chapter and my original thinking was kind of adversity and what we can, what that teaches us, what that learns us, you know, these struggles we have and, and how that can become a good thing or it can provide a silver lining and unexpected benefits of things we wouldn't choose to suffer. And along the way, this whole separate chapter was born out of that and it's about neurodiversity. So this is a relatively new term. Now, I believe that in 1980, the term um, neurosis was retired in the kind of medical medical community because, well, psychiatric community, because it's just too broad. Once we started to gain a better understand, understanding of um, the brain, the human brain, conditions and mental health, it was very quickly apparent that, that neurotic neurosis was just a big umbrella term that this didn't do anything justice, didn't help anyone. Neurodiversity, however, I love that. So I've been digging deeper into that, looking at ADHD and autism. and But overall, the kind of, the many, many overlaps, and it doesn't necessarily mean that we have a condition per se, but it can mean we have symptoms or tendencies of a certain condition, which also link into something else and a factor of our creativity. So this is something I've been writing about in depth at length. And Ben just landed perfectly right in the middle of that. So we're going to get into that. We're going to talk about the origins of Studio DBD and how that itself was born out of a few, I don't want to say a false starts because it's not such a thing, really, I don't believe, but things that ended sooner than maybe Ben would have envisioned or didn't work out as much as he would have liked. And we're going to talk about the balance between Ben and Alex, uh, who's the other half of Studio BND, who is also dyslexic, and why they have a keen awareness of one another's strengths and weaknesses and why that's what really underpins making neurodiversity work is that understanding appreciation and uh, acceptance and putting our conditions whatever they may be whether they are a, a diagnosis or whether it's just a, a tendency or a symptom in an environment where we, where, where we can thrive so that's going to be a big crux of what we're talking about we also get into seeing the world as a playground and this links back to ben's early years and he had a lot of kind of athletic tendencies and, and a very outdoor lifestyle living up in the lake district and how, to this day, he uh, really places a high value on uh, socialising in, in person with other humans. And this is another topic that's coming up in the book and just how vital that is. And the, the, the research and the, the evidence out there suggests that actually, without fruitful, proper relationships, we can suffer physically and mentally quite heavily. I think a lot of us learned that during COVID. Um, so we're going to get into that too. So without further ado, I'm not going to keep you much longer. Thank you to Illustration X, founding sponsor. Hit me up on social, at Ben Talon, or if you want to email, hello at bentalon.com. Uh, here is the conversation with Ben Mottershead from Studio BND. Enjoy. I've, I've got moved from post to post quite a bit growing up. So the house I'm in now, which is the fir my first owned house, um, is the 20th place I've ever lived, um, 20th home I've lived in. And I grew up in the South Lake District um, in a little town called Alberston near Barrow Furnace. Um, I was there for about 16, 17 years, and then I got moved to the Midlands in a place called Stafford, which is near between Birmingham, Wolverhampton, um, Stoke, and I was there for another three years. Went to Bristol in uni, uh, so I went to uni in Bristol, went to University of West of England, studied graphic design. Then 
when I graduated, there wasn't really any creative sector really up north yet. There wasn't really any kind of like, there was, but there wasn't. And then I kind of got pushed to London, spent six, seven years dossing around there. And then I finally moved out to Hertfordshire and I got my house. But yeah, so my, but my childhood was really interesting because um, I guess a lot of my friends I have now, especially my male friends, they spent a lot of their teenage years kind of, you know, they'd be playing Xbox, they'd be doing stuff like that, like a lot of like more internal environments. Um, my childhood was like mountain biking and rock climbing, and I was had the lakes. So you go, I was I, I was water skiing by the time I was sort of twelve years old, and it's really interesting because I think I grew up almost in a, like Cumbria is a bit of a little bubble. It's very similar population. I think it's something like ninety eight point five percent white British. Um, it's quite elderly, but you grow up in this kind of little eco um, system and almost echo chamber. So when I kind of started moving around a lot. It was quite surprising to me that people hadn't had that really ultra outdoor lifestyle. Like I, I was mountain biking from the age of about eight years old. Always loved that. I've always loved the outdoors, extreme sports. I grew up skating, snowboarding, skiing. Um, the only reason, and I, I would say at this point, I was never affluent. Like my my parents had were like you know my dad was a teacher. Mum ran training courses for AGK. They basically allowed us to do ski holidays because we moved around so frequently that every time they remortgaged, they took five grand back. And then pay for the ski holiday through basically borrowing back on the mortgage, which is why they've only they're like in their sixties and only just about to pay off their mortgage. Um, but and I think for me, it was quite a big culture shock when I moved from somewhere like the Lake District to let's say the Midlands, which was heavily industrialized. You had Birmingham, etc. Finally, though, there was like, you know I could go visit stores like the the best fashion store where I grew up in the Lakes was Debenhams. Um, they didn't have anything. So I got to move to the the Midlands, which was really cool. You had the bull ring on like a train's journey away, et cetera. But there wasn't really the outdoor life. And I had to then kind of re almost every time I've moved, I've almost had to reshape my expectations as everyone does, because the things I grew up loving were things I couldn't really do any longer. So I played competitive basketball for a massive point, like from the age of like eight through to being like 18, 20. Um, I played on the county team, regional team. Um, they had an amazing basketball centre up in Barrow Furnace called Hoops. Um, it was like the National Basketball Centre. But then when I moved, I couldn't swap teams. So I lost all that big um, personality-defining aspect of my life, which had been such a big thing for me. And I think all I've learned over my entire life is that you have to become very resilient and learn how to adapt very well. Because um, just on a personal level, I've had to make new groups of friends every couple of years. I've had to like learn how to communicate with different types of people. It's made me very empathetic towards very different people. Like I, I grew up with a lot of working class friends in the Lake District. And then slowly as I've moved further south, they've become slightly more and more affluent. And I'd probably say now, a lot of the friends I have now are actually would definitely either class them. I don't really like the class system in this country, but they're definitely point four into that established middle class, like parents own multi million one million pound house plus or eight hundred thousand pound house plus. Um and it's been interesting over my lifetime to see the sort of demographic changes as I've moved. Mm. And that must, I mean, does that play a part? What What are the roots of your kind of, your, you know, getting into this industry? Like what were the, what were the seeds of that interest? Because it, to go from extra, I mean, I always, I, I'm not a person who draws boundaries between any life experiences, really. I think influences must come from far and wide. Yeah. And I think, so I always see many parallels between sports and outdoor lifestyle and what we do with our profession. So what about yourself? Well, I think it was, you know, 
creativity and art was always a big thing for me. I was always naturally, I always had a natural ability of art. I loved cartoonists. I would spend hours like just drawing from um, like, you know, almost copying what you'd see in books and just like drawing and tracing. And I always had a very creative side. I, I grew up collecting Warhammer. I think because I'm ADHD, I'm very kind of obsessed with collection. So I've got next to me, I've got the um, 800 pound Millennium Falcon Lego set, which um, I'm just obsessed with like collecting and making. Um, but so my a big part of my childhood was fighting between the athletic side of me and the creative side. And yes, athleticism, it does have strategy. It does have creativity that goes into that, especially the um, the extreme sports like skate skating, like snowboarding, like turning your world into a playground is a very creative outlook. Um, and actually, the only I'm, I'm I am a bit of a believer in like fate, fate because when I was choosing, so I did GCSE art and I hated it. I didn't like the staff. I didn't get on with it. It, it. it didn't grip me. So when I went to do my A-levels, I wasn't going to do art. I was going, I chose English media, philosophy, BPE, which is one of my best subjects at school and sport, sports science. I turned up today to re- on the day to register and the belief, philosophy and ethics course wasn't running. They hadn't got the interest. So they weren't running it that year. So I had to stand in the middle of this hole to quickly work out what I was doing. And I just turned 180 on the spot and there was the art desk in front of me. And I just went, oh, I, I did art. I got a B at GCSE. I was like, oh, why not? I'll go do that. So I just signed up. On, I didn't have any thought about it. I was just like, oh, it'll be something to do while for the next couple of years. Um, fast forward a few years and I'd had the opposite in my A-levels. The sports science department at my school were awful. They put no provisions into the sports I actually enjoyed, which was basketball, etc. And um, I ended up doing getting a very bad result in my um, sports science AS level. So then I was like, okay, I'm really disenfranchised by sports science. I'm going to focus on art and media because actually at the time they were my best and favorite subjects. They'd almost turned into that. But I would, I'd never had the intention to make it a career. I just thought I like these things. My mum and dad had always been very encouraging about follow what you enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad had spent a career as a teacher. And he was incredible at teaching. Every school he left, he got hundreds of cards from students, but he didn't like it. He didn't like teaching. He um, he took the job because he had two young kids who needed providing for. Um, so they were very big with me and my brother about following what you enjoy, not what necessarily will make you money. Um, and then that kind of spiraled into doing a foundation year. Still didn't know if that's what I wanted to do. I did it at Stafford College. It was just like following the natural process. Um, And I actually didn't decide I wanted to go into graphic design until the second term of my foundation in 2011, when I was actually going to interview at universities. And at that point, I was just like, I actually quite enjoy this. I still didn't quite understand what graphic design was, but it felt like there was a there was more kind of career opportunity in graphic design. And it felt like it was something I I quite liked. So, yeah, I'm one of these kind of people that almost fell into it and never just I just I never really wanted to necessarily be a designer, but I wanted to do something that I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, and enjoyment is the ultimate compass, isn't it? Let's face it. I think you know, doesn't matter how good you are at a thing, uh, um, as you just illustrated there with your dad's story. Um, yeah, and I think it's it, it's a very important thing. I think to always reflect on. It's definitely been a big part of my career. Is do I enjoy this? Because I've always been very honest. I've said this on previous podcasts. I've said this in previous when I've given talks. The moment design stops being enjoyable for me, I'll just leave because I'm not, you know, I'm not married to this 
to my career. I love the work we create for clients. I love the friends and collaborations I, I have with cli- my, our clients uh, who ultimately then go on to become our friends and all, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I love the people we work with. I, I enjoy every day being able to wake up and solve a new problem. But the moment that isn't there anymore and I'm just not happy, I'll just go do something else. I'll go and, you know, work outdoors or I'll go find a different career path because I think life is a bit too short to just be like stuck in one place for your entire life not having fun. Yeah, I agree. And it's why I've sort of, you know, constantly shifted my own career and um, worked out, you know, what I can do, what I'm able to do, and what I can sort of make money from to tick the boxes we all have to tick. But then ultimately, if I I have to be excited about something that I'm doing, you can't yeah. always do that. There, don't get me wrong. There are you know periods in projects. There's downtimes that are stressful. There's, that's life. That's just inevitable. But yeah. I think ultimately you have to be excited about where you're going, or or even we can't know where we were going per se. You know, there's not like a, a roadmap. But I think you have to lead it yourself you can't be just governed by paying the mortgage and whatever else because that just leads to some sticky places and some bad mental health and everything else that comes with it and it just kills the spirit a little bit you know i think it comes down to passion it's basically do you have the passion to do what you're doing or do you and even when it's not working out do you still have the passion to solve that problem so even when you're not happy happy there's client problems going on you're like or your revenues taking a dip or blah 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 do you still have the passion for what you do to be able to get yourself out of those problems because you can see the, the value in it and value to yourself personally and professionally? Mm-hmm. I think the moment that passion stops, that's when you have to do a reset. And that's actually did happen to me in my career. I completely lost the passion for design and I took a year out and I went and did something. It's when I actually went to work for Glug Events and handled a lot of their strategic output. But it wasn't. I wasn't a designer. I wasn't on the tools. I spent a whole year not really designing and it revitalized my entire passion for it when I got back into it. Um, and I think that's the thing I always look out for in, a, in career designers and career creative professionals is once that passion goes, you kind of need to step away because it's so hard to get passion back into your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's mom- again, this goes back to the flow state thing. It's momentum. Yeah. Uh, and it has to be organic. You know, it's not these are not things we can switch on and off. They're more animalistic, you know, than that. And I think um, you hit upon something. So I'd love to talk about the ADHD because I think it's yeah. <laughs> conceptions around it. And as somebody who lives with it, then I guess you'll be um, best positioned to tell us about it. But before before you do, this is just thrown a, a crazy idea in my mind. But I've become good friends with a guy who also has ADHD on the dog walk here in Salisbury. Ah. And he was only telling me the other week about his own rabid collections of things. Yeah. And now you've said this. And I'm thinking, is this – I mean, you know, obviously – can't speak for everyone but i'm wondering if there's something in that you know is that is that is that the next coffee table book i don't know is that you know collections (laughs) what you know it's fascinating it's um so i'm by no means kind of an academic expert on it but i've probably read into it more than most and there is a parallel between um adhd and also bear in mind adhd can have sort of combined other things so like a lot of people adhd tend to also be on the autistic spectrum um as i am so i i have I'm very like I'm not high on the autistic spectrum, but I I often have problems reading other people's emotions. So I might say something, someone might get upset by that, but I can't understand why they're upset. And I've I've always I've got better as I've got older because I've started to read signs and signals, and I think I've probably got a little bit more compassionate. 
Um, but for years, I just I would just say things and then I wouldn't understand if I wasn't upset, why are you upset? So etc. But there's also because of those slight autistic qualities, I don't know if that's what drives my impulsion for collection. Um, so over the years, I've collected everything from like I said, Warhammer, like massively into Lego. There was also like collecting all these like little mini kind of collectible figurines from like Discworld, like Terry Pratchett novels, um, collecting stickers, collecting just anything you can think of. And it wasn't even that they got like got used. I just ended up with like I, I, I you know, I collected business cards at one point for no, they didn't get catalogued. I just ended up with like 200 business cards. And I was just like, this is so cool. Like, look at all these business. But then it was like, but then the other day I actually threw a load of them out. So I'm like, it's not cool. It's sad. Um, there's no purpose in it. But I do, I think there is something. I've noticed the people I meet often are very interested in cataloging, collecting, building a sort of a little kind of mini empire of things. Hmm. I wonder what the parallels are between that and design, given that we spend a lot of our time in that kind of microcosm that ultimately not too many other people will notice outside of the client and the person who's making the work. You know, the margins that we live in as a sort of design yeah. that mean everything to us. Let's say it's kerning or something along those lines. Um, I wonder if there's something in that, that kind of microcosmic, I don't know, I'm just, just thinking out loud now. But... Well, it's interesting how you obviously talk, you were talking about flow states, and obviously one of the big side effects to ADHD is hyperfocus, um, and that kind of comes and goes. So it's, you're kind of a double-sided sword of just utter pain and actually quite rewarding symptoms. So on the one hand, ADHD isn't a lack of attention it's that you place your attention on too many things and it's almost like unlimited attention but you don't know how to direct that so i think a big misconception i've come across is that everyone always thinks that if you've got adhd you're just naturally very distractible and you, you can't focus and it's not that it's just that if i was in an open office i would notice that the phone was going over there there's a conversation going on behind me meanwhile it was just all these different things happening i wouldn't really know how to handle that and like recenter myself um, but on the other hand, you also have side effects kind of like hyperfocus, where you can just hyperfixate on one thing for hours and hours and hours on end and never not get bored of it and just keep working and working. Or in my case, I'll end up on a, you know, a six hour binge on Wikipedia, which is the Star Wars Wikipedia. And I'll learn everything there is to know about lightsabers. I'll, I'll learn. So I did it with Lord of the Rings as well. So there's one for Lord of the Rings. I learned everything you can learn about Balrogs from Lord of the Rings and the, the five different Balrogs there are and what they're and how they were created. Wow. So my partner finds it so hilarious because I can kind of bring up something about anything. And it's actually what's played into design and what we're since starting the business. I can find a common ground with almost anyone because of my ability to hyper-focus and how that, bear in mind, I don't do it intentionally, but I've it's led me to just collect this abundance of knowledge very surface level but then if someone brought up golf bear in mind i don't play golf i don't really care about golf i could talk about you know charlie woods and how he's actually worked like you know he's been doing loads of like pair like um father and son golf tournaments and actually he's becoming a very dominant figure in golf and blah 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 blah. but that's just from literally hyper focusing for a few hours and just reading all about it mm -hmm. so i think there's a lot of positives to adhd and there's a hell of a lot of negatives I think social media has polarized it quite heavily. And I think a lot of people are self-diagnosing when they necessarily shouldn't be. I think it's glamorized it quite heavily. Bear in mind, I, I've i quit jobs because of my ADHD, because I've been so burnt out, so fatigued, felt so misunderstood that it's just made me like miserable. Um, and I think there's, 
there's a lot of pros to take into the creative industries from it and definitely a lot of um skill sets that kind of interchange but it's not without its um its issues so to say it lightly yeah of course i mean i'm, I'm very interested in that way of thinking as in i was reading um malcolm gladwell i think it was david and goliath david versus goliath incredible book about underdog psychology and there's a whole chapter on that looking at you know that the whole concept of i mean disability is probably too strong but disability is ability and and, and you know yeah. The the, the 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 both sides of it and um and it was really interesting because actually because you said so rem remind me of the name of your partner at studio bnd oh yeah so it's um alex so, so alex is dyslexic right you said yeah yeah so that was that was one thing that came up in the book and they looked at why there's a really high percentage of dyslexic people that are successful in business and mm. um this partly it's because well they think it's partly because there's been a greater degree of adversity in early life that others who don't have it may not have had to overcome and therefore yeah. the adaptability there's a work ethic that's ingrained through having to overcome these hurdles and yeah. that has certainly advantageous properties which i find really well, my um, my partner claire she's really dyslexic like very heavily dyslexic and um she's in insanely driven like almost probably one of the most driven people i've ever come across in my life i think because she's also had short fallings in her life due to things that happened in the family and other things um she, she and because of her almost ac academic shortcoming in terms of actually she has this thing she can't control but it's led to her to have to kind of see the world in a different way to prepare for life in a different way she's just incredibly driven she never wants help which is actually i would say a negative byproduct she always wants to do it herself mm -hmm. um but there's definitely that connection and interestingly enough there's also an enormous amount of people in the creative industries who do have adhd and uh, what well, add now falls under adhd but interestingly enough, that comes about because people with ADHD often want instant gratification. So they, they seek out, it's not that people with ADHD are better at creativity, it's that they naturally seek out things that reward them more frequently. So instead of me having to revise for two, three, four weeks to get do one test and then get my results back, being a designer allows me to instantly be rewarded throughout the entire day by problem solving, by trying to do things and that means you're naturally going to attract people with that kind of cognitive outlook the same way like just because you're born to be really tall and have long arms means you'll swim it's just that swimming attracts people with that body proportion mm -hmm. and that's why you end up with swimmers all looking the same way so it's um there's definitely a lot of neurological disorders in the creative industries and i think like you've pointed out it's because of the natural outlook people have and how the creative industries naturally rewards that mm, god yeah you've opened up a whole whole universe of thought because yeah i mean and i've always it's one of the things i love about the arts and it's one of the things that i found so much magic in when i first went to art college and got outside of that school bubble where it's very formal yeah. and very rigid you know rows of desks and and um uniform length of lessons and the rest all the other things that make school far less of an experience than it should be um but then arriving at art college and then encountering you know all, all like you said all kinds of people and interesting characters and and that comes in all shapes and sizes and it's one of the things i found the most magic in but yeah i mean 14 years i've been full-time in the industry now and i constantly encounter really interesting rich people and a lot of them do have conditions or yeah. quirks however you want to put it there's there's just a lot just a crazy range of personalities i think the big thing is just working to also just learning to work to your strengths um i and actually the, the studios that i've over the years the agencies i've worked at 
I've done best that have actually been run by people who've recognised that what my strengths are. So I'm not. Luckily for me, Alex is incredibly detail orientated, mainly because of his dyslexia. Because he has to be, he's always like done that rigor around his work. That's not me. If you want work done incredibly quickly and to have someone be able to jump across six different projects at once while answering the phone and replying to an email, that's where I come in, and that's where I'm actually very um, competent. So we kind of balance each other off. But over the years, I've just learned that my competency is in that multi kind of task, like that kind of role. And I don't get overwhelmed by that because mentally I can handle that level of intensity. Um, But I always have to get Alex to kind of check over things or I'll get one of our designers to check over things. Um, And, you know, I'll just what we're trying to do at the moment is reconfigure the business. So I take more of a kind of a CEO role where I'm kind of more focused on getting the brand out there and the business out there and mm. then Alex is more handling the creative output um because that naturally kind of fits our specs but the companies I've had a horrible time at trying have, have tried to make me really fit into a very small kind of shape mm. and it's made me miserable because I'm trying to be forced to work away that doesn't just naturally fit how I work mm. um so it's interesting. I think that that's all the advice I've always given other people I've come across with ADHD. It's that take your time, write a list of actually, you know, write yourself a job description. Like what is that? What are your biggest strengths? Mm-hmm. And then try and in the place you're working, sit down with management and carve out what your role should look like and how you can, they, you, you know, they can get the most out of you because if they get, you know, if they can charge you out and get loads of money from working to your strengths, it's a win-win. You'll be happy. They'll be making cash. I think that's incredible life advice, and I think it's. It, this came up on a podcast I did recently, and I was talking to um, a lass called Sarah Coggin, and she's a language teacher and an illustrator, so quite an interesting mix of roles. And she uses a very emotive way of teaching languages because she did a lot of travelling, and she hated mm. the fact that she would go to parties or whatever social event was going on and not be able to mingle because she didn't know the language. So she would very much throw herself in the deep end, try to learn the language, almost crash course style by just being in the deep end. So she she works with people to establish their own emotional triggers and what their passions are to try and lead with that way of learning. Because as we know, in a learning environment, when you're interested and you're engaged, it just happens so much easier. And she had this analogy for personalities. So I came to her with one that was my, I called it my top trump system. So it was a way of looking at all personality traits as both positive and negative and considering whether it's something that maybe you're better just managing and eliminating or whether it's something that actually could be really positive if it's a negative in the right environment. So in my case, I'm very haphazard. I'm very clumsy. Um, so around the house, it's a nightmare, constantly smashing yeah. bits or, you know, so falling over the baby gate or whatever. Um, that may rank as a two out of 10 on a top trump card, but actually yeah. that two out of 10 is gold in the creative industry because it's the foundational roots of my drawing style, which is I've built my entire career on. Yeah. So, so that would then in that context maybe be an eight. So it's, it's worth looking at it that way. And what Sarah did, she called it her mixing desk. So she she thought of it as these dials. Uh, each one can be any number of personality traits. And it's a kind of, it's a case of, okay, do I turn that one up to eight? Do I just leave that one be? What are the combinations? And I think you hit upon it there in, in terms of championing those strengths yeah. and maybe peppering it with a couple of weaknesses that might give you a, a unique something or other. But that, but it's you're absolutely right about you've got to confront and kind of assimilate all these things, and then work out where your best position. So that balance between you and Alex sounds perfect. You know, it's also like, you know as creative professionals, we're problem solvers. So 
you know, you turn your biggest, what you perceive your biggest weaknesses to be into your biggest strengths. And if you can't do that, you hire someone or you find someone else. In terms of what I can do, I can hire someone to fix that hole. So if one of my biggest weaknesses I can't fix, then I can. I need to find a way to find either someone else who can do it or to find a way that I can mediate my job role and responsibility that I don't have to necessarily do it. Yep. But I always am a believer that if you look at any of the people, like any of the people I revere in the creative industries, the reason they're at the position they are, other than the fact they've been going for like, you know, 20, 30 years or whatever, is because they know how to take those problems and make them into solutions for other people. Or they maybe they're not the best um, listener. So, but then if you're not the best listener, just record everything. So if like with me, I, I, I have a problem where I kind of, without meaning to zone in and out of things quite heavily. So all I have to try and do sometimes is just put my phone on record when I'm doing client calls so I can review back on things and make sure I am actually there. Or I have to make sure I've got a staff member in the room who is a very good bloody listener and can actually like take on notes and stuff like that. So I don't believe that there's any any person is intrinsically broken or can't get where they want to get to in life. They just have to do it, be smart about it and not work against themselves. You mm-hmm. can't train yourself to be have a certain quality if it's not intrinsically who you are so if you're a very unorganized person and no matter what you try you struggle to get unorganized you can't fight against that so you have to embrace that but then look at what a solution could be to better do plan so i i struggle with time management because i'm adhd so i used an app called planner or plan.io which is a box planning website and I can just plan in a to-do list into like one, two, three-hour segments or more. And throughout my entire day, it links to my Google calendar. And I can just then strip, like go through the job list. And it makes me really productive. But it's amazing how many people I come across who just fight against their own like human nature. They try and be someone, you know. So you take like Simon and Apova, Simon Dixon, let's say Simon Dixon, brilliant creative mind, like brilliant business leader. Um, but there's no point in me looking at Simon and going, oh, I wish I could. I'm just going to try and emulate everything you do because with different people, it's never going to work. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is. It's yeah, it's trusting and embracing what you are and what you are not. And like you say, yeah, and leading, you know, forging your path that way. And I just think life becomes far more satisfying when you're able to do that. You can let go of a lot of shit that way, you know? Yeah, and it's also it's like, you know, you 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 fill your life with happiness and rewards and you're not constantly um upset and tired and fatigued because things aren't going your way because the moment you embrace that you have weaknesses and then you learn how to turn those weaknesses into, into strengths or how learn how to work with them every day is just a better day you're not stressed you're like, finding solutions to things you're finally working and this isn't just about creative industries this is in all aspects of life gotcha. you're finally working working in a way that suits you and the world around you is working in a way that suits you and therefore it's hard to get upset about that because there isn't anything to get upset over mm-hmm. i think it's nail on the head we obviously we'll, we'll get into it in a moment but like last year we were really we had a really rough time like we lost because of business because of like budgets being slashed from multiple clients we lost about 11 projects around october time and as a result we had no cash flow forecast for i think the net for for three three four months um and we were really in a bad state financially as a result and then um we luckily landed like a global rebrand for um, an online learning provider uh which was actually for a referral for another agency which was great and then that but that came in and kicked off in 
the 10th of December and they wanted the delivery by the 30th of January. Right. Uh, and it was like, it required an entire like strategic, like so much strategic planning. So we, um, I spent the entire of December working right up to Christmas Eve and then basically doing focus groups in between Boxing Day and New Year and the start of January, um, just solidly working and then working flat out for the whole of January to deliver the creative output. Um, it was, yeah, it was, um, this year it's much better place financially as a business, but also just like can kind of have the luxury of not worrying and just taking a month off if we need to. Uh, it's, it's a great place to be. Yeah. It's also because for like, you know, last year was our first year of business. I was freelance before that built up a clientele, blah, blah, blah. But your first year during a pandemic, like it's a very, um, interesting time to start a business and it was a lot of scrambling we didn't have a, we didn't do the thing where we, we we didn't start off with a business plan we started off just with a load of clients and going right let's see if we can turn this into something um and that worked and you know we only made we didn't make a huge amount of cash that first year, but enough to like you know ma maintain salaries to bring on like a couple of extra staff and blah 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 but it was um this second year, we basically really focused. We took two months out on the second quarter of the year and really just worked with a business advisor to focus on what we were offering, how we like linked up our Monday.com account with QuickBooks and all this kind of, you know, all the boring stuff that people don't realize goes into running a creative agency. Mm -hmm. um, and it's meant we've really like, I think our, you know, our profit for this year is like 60 odd percent more than it was last year. Um, but it's, um, yeah, I'm just knackered. Like if, I, if even half these people we've been speaking to come through, we're going to be absolutely slammed. But it's um, which I, I love. I love the fact that we're we're, we're potentially that busy. But mm. looking after your mental health and how giving yourself downtime is really important. Like I said, I've only had like 15, 16 days off this year. That was mainly down, and a lot of that was like long weekends for weddings. Yeah. Um, so I haven't really had any holiday this year and it's not, in hindsight, it's a really bad place to get into. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about it. So you were, yeah. uh, were, were you, how did you know each other? So. Yeah. So, um, I suppose I can go a bit into my, my career background at this point. So I've kind of done everything there is to do. Um, I graduated university. I interned in London, uh, an agency called 1.0. Um, one of the first big clients and projects I worked on was the Nike World Basketball Festival. And that was great. Uh, by happenstance, one of their main freelancers had got ill. So they kind of turned to me to really jump onto that project. I had to learn how to use SketchUp and do loads of artwork and blah, blah, blah. Um, and then I got bored of the intern life and they weren't really able to commit to a full-time role. So then I left and went to work for a branding agency and design agency out in Hertfordshire and Hitchin, um, which was like a small team. I think it was like eight of us, nine of us. And um, that was working for clients like Tesco and Sainsbury's doing a lot of like uh, menu design and restaurant led branding and hospitality led branding. Um, and then nine months after starting there, they lost Tesco and subsequently the restaurant chain Giraffe as clients, which are two of their biggest clients. And they had to let me go. They didn't have the income to facilitate a junior position, basically, in the company. Um, and at that point, I then looked at the landscape. I'd, I'd, I'd specialised for a, a term at university in motion design. And I really loved the storytelling aspect. Um, so 
I, at that point, I started looking for a job again. My best mate at the time was working at a motion agency in London called Swipe, and they said they had an opening. So I ended up going into motion design um, and did that for then the following three, three to four years. Um, worked my way up to quite high in that in the company, um, leading projects, blah blah blah. That was again they worked for a lot of um, what would you class them as like high street retailers. So you had like the white company, and you had like companies like Vogue and blah blah blah. But it was um, a lot of that kind of more high street store led stuff. Um, and then after three and a half years there, that company collapsed on itself, um, and just sort of like I think because of the the climate around retail as well they were just naturally losing clients. And then in the end, they actually lost everyone bar one of the designers. So it ended up just being the founder, one of the founders and the, one of the senior designers who'd been there from the start. And um, at that point, I was like, oh, great. Okay, I've been wanting to go freelance for years at that point. I was so fed up of working for other people. And I went and left. And then I bottled it and found myself a job in a design agency and I think at the time, my, I remember talking to my partner Claire about this and going, "Oh, I wish I'd more digital. This this company do loads of digital work. I'm gonna I'm gonna do take this job and learn loads about digital design because that'll really round me off as like a freelancer." Kind of ignoring the fact that actually freelancers often just get brought into work on bitty things and it's it, to get paid a nice day rate. So I did that. And it was great for about a month, and then I realised I'd made a very bad decision, and I was in the wrong place i hated and resented myself for not having gone freelance and i spent the next eight months there just miserable and they didn't understand how to work with my adhd the head of design was pretty useless um this lovely person but just i don't think she had a very good grasp on how to handle a team that required different things and i never felt backed up or supported in that role so i remember i walked in one day and the hair design it was like literally 9 a.m. and the head design, the first thing they did was turn to me and start kind of laying into me about something that was, and bear in, I think it would, what it would be worth saying at this point is the hair design wasn't happy either. She actually left shortly after I did, but she just started laying into me. I turned around in my chair, asked to speak to the managing director who was sat the other side of the room and then just quit. There's what I quit on the spot and said, no, I'm done. Um, and then at that point, I went to become freelance. Um, I had to do a four-week notice period. But at the time, I'd been speaking to a, a woman called Chelsea, who was who's now the art, one of the senior art directors at Vice Media. And she got in touch and was like, oh, we need someone to come in for three weeks. Can you jump on? Um, and I just said to my agency, I was like, look, I don't want to be here. You don't want me here. I'm just going to do nothing for the next three weeks and get paid for it. So if you let me go now, I'll leave on Monday and we'll just call it quits. And they just said, yeah, fine. So I left on the Friday. On the Monday, I started advice as a freelancer for three weeks. I remember the first time I invoiced and it was more money than I think I'd ever seen in a single like paycheck. And I was just like hooked at that point. Um, so yeah, I did, I did that. And what I would say as well is because of my experience with the agency I was at, I was really, really burnt out. And I was kind of, this is what I was saying about looking for a change and wanting to do a different, something that wasn't creative or as creative. So I did the three weeks advice. I got um, my invoice for that. And then I kind of got approached by the CEO of Glug, at the time CEO of Glug Events. And he loved how much, over the years, I've done quite a lot of community building. So I'd run like design groups and I'd, I'd helped build a lot of social, one design group I kind of was um, helped build. I took their Instagram following from 
9,000 to 60,000 in three months. Um, and he really loved that. So he what he brought me on board to kind of oversee Glug's strategy for like a couple of days a week. And it was great. I got paid a, a full time. I know I got I got paid a salary, basically, equivalent of a salary to do a couple of days. And it allowed my other time to just be sort of doing bits and bats and kind of really decompressing after working in the industry solidly for seven, like seven odd years. Um, and Alex, who's my now business partner, he was the head. Of, he was in charge of the, the design output for Glug at the time. So we met through that. And um, I, we did. I did that for a couple of years. And then Glug sadly died during the pandemic because it was an events company that couldn't run events. Um, and I then then basically got the CEO of Glug had a, uh, was talking to Concord Music Publishing, who were looking for a load of work to be done around the campaign, like a year long campaign. And Pete got in touch with myself and Alex and Pete knew I was freelancing at the time and Alex was kind of about to potentially be unemployed. So um, he got us both involved in that project and we did that project together. And then one, a load of my other clients were wanting more work. And then I was like to Alex, well, why don't you come on board with me and we'll just see if we can make this thing work and we'll see what we can get from it. Um, so over the years, I've kind of done everything from, you know, brand to motion to digital act and activation strategy, et cetera, and, and kind of learned the ropes of being self-employed, like how to do accounts properly and so on. Um, and then we started the business. We registered on the 28th, 28th of January, 2021 or 2nd of February, 2020. I can never remember, which I probably should know for tax reasons, but you know, it's whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean we've we've done that ever since, but we we started a business during the middle of COVID. It was like we hadn't lockdown hadn't cleared. It cleared later that year, but we had to just kind of try and find as much work as we as we could. Um, we brought on a couple of people during that first year and like fixed term contracts. So it was like a, like three months, six months, etc. And then um, we've always been fully work from home. We work. We've tried to always work four days a week. We're very kind of like. I guess a business that stemmed from COVID, a, a new a new age design agency, so to speak. Although I would say that everyone's doing the four day a week thing now, and it's just like, oh, like I, I can't really brag about it anymore. Um, and yeah, and then but we, you know, we were just scrambling. Like it's like you do if you don't have time to set up a proper business plan. We had to learn how to do like actual spreadsheets and all these kind of like you know all the stuff that comes with a business. And um, then that's then in the second year that we've just come into the end of we've really managed to buckle down and set up proper systems and you know but we were quite lucky like you know they always like we were we, we landed our first studio projects were basically a year-long campaign for concord music we had three month retainer secured for one of my old clients which is to do social social media strategy and man, uh, management and content design and then um, at the end of the year, we landed a global rebrand for a company called Upskillist, who were previously called Shaw Academy. And then at the start of this year, we landed a massive 3D motion project. And it's just like, we've just had a, it's doing it wrong. We're very good at what we do, but anyone will tell you in this industry, part of growing a business and doing it well is one part skill and a, quite a bit of luck and having a very good network who can refer you to. Um, so it's it's been a bit of a strange one. I don't think either has ever intended this to become more than it probably has done. We were just like, oh, we could make some work together and it'd be, it'd be quite a laugh. But we're definitely um, at the point where we just want to kind of do like grow now, and we kind of just want to you know go and do that. We like, for instance, we don't have an office space. We've always been remote, and that's great. But I spend a lot of my time just sat in an office with no one around, and I go a bit stir crazy. So. 
we're looking to finally actually go and find like an actual place where we can work and get a team, build the team, etc. Yeah, environment is crucial, I think. And uh, I, I work alone at home. And even though I've got a dedicated workspace now, which is a step up from what was the spare room throughout early parenthood and COVID. Yeah. Uh, I still need to go in town and just, you know, be in coffee shops or go for, a, you know, get on a train or something. I, I need I need that. I need that stimulus. I need that buzz. And, and actually, I've always thrived when I've been in, you know, even if I've got my own workspace within a shared building, it's just that collaboration and being around other people and that but the, the energy of a place is really Human, important. Humans need human contact. It's not like it's not good normally. I said there's a great book by Sherry Turkle. Um, I can't remember it's called Together Alone or Alone Together. But it's basically about how we live in an age now where people feel like they're always around each other, despite the fact they're sat in a room by themselves. Like me me and you right now, I'm sat in a little room with no one here. I'm just talking to a screen. And (laughs) that's not healthy. And actually the idea of social media, feeling like you've got an extension to other people when you don't, you live, it's a very isolating experience. Um, And I think it is very important to kind of go out and, you know, do things. And if you have a small business like we do, I think the thing we've learned is, you should work out what your marketing spend is and invest it, even if it's just to go take clients to drinks or go and actually go out and do things. Because if you can't invest your marketing spend on mar- like, you know, paid marketing or you know, your offer or whatever, then you should or like a marketing staff member, you should absolutely be paid using every ounce of it to go and actually go do things because creativity isn't doesn't come from isolated bubbles. It comes from human real world experience and contact. And it definitely doesn't come from doing six Zoom calls a day and looking on like it's nice that or Pinterest for research. It comes from being out in the world. I've just put out my latest Design Week column and it's 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 kind of um, thoughts on the, the current conversation around AI and, and threat yeah. to our industry. Yeah. And that's the overriding theme in the piece is that actually it's, it's the humanity that will, that will stop that. And there's some great t- uh, comments in there from Sean Thomas, who's the ECD at jkr a lot of letters there um and he he talked about how how that doesn't happen is that is when we pull all our inspirations from broad spheres from all around the world and not just pinterest and google images and because we're just feeding the knowledge of that tech if we do that and it just becomes you know replicate after replicant and it's just um that's well, it. to go there that's the thing me and my business partner actually we're having a sort of mini debate about this every day because we were playing around on like a mid-journey and stuff like that and I think I was kind of saying that the issue I've got with AI is AI replicates while humans interpret. And AI doesn't interpret. AI will scan, like Midjourney, Dali, they scan the web and they cobble together imagery based off what, like everything that's out there. But they don't interpret human emotion. They don't interpret the unpredictable aspects of what human humans are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel actually a lot of time the best design work is a design work that has imperfections within it. Because humans are not imperfect, spe- imperfect species, and it's often the little imperfections that actually make it feel human and make it feel kind of grounded in reality. And I think at the moment we're not. I don't think we're, there's any threat. I think there's great things being done with AI in terms of um, so Fiasco's uh, uh, Fiasco Design uh, sister studio. I think it's Yatta or Yatta. Um, ben, who's the director there, they've been using fabric uh, using Dali or mid mid journey to create fabric fabric simulations which they've then utilized in animated models so that's a great example of how you can take something like ai to generate something quicker and then utilize it as a texture in an actual like strategically led project my issue with ai at the moment is 
it delivers based off what your interpretation of the problem is, not necessarily on what the problem or interpretation is for intended you audience or user or demographic. Yeah. Um, I think it could get there, but then I'm I agree with Sean. I think it's um it's a long way off, and I I think until AI has mastered the power of human emotion. At which point we enter Sarah Connor Terminator level stuff. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We're going to create anything nearly as good as what human creative professionals work to when they're working to an actual brief. Yeah. Because it all stems out of strategy. It all stems out of actually understanding people. And I think AI at the moment understands how to in, um, replicate what it sees online. It doesn't understand how to actually create for a human response. Yep. You're absolutely right, and that's and that's exactly what I was getting at. Yeah, in the, in the piece, which is just interesting to dissect. But you actually said something really interesting earlier in the chat that that's resonated with me, and it was going back to the stimulus thing and the environment, and not you know they're not sitting on Zoom thing. And when you said you know seeing your whole your world as a playground, and you said it in reference yeah. to skating, it's absolutely how I've, I've learned to see the world through my art because I did what I called the uh, Know What I Mean series, and this was basically me using these chance finds in the street that that I found interesting you know anything from a cigarette box to a, an interesting piece of graffiti just yeah. the, the incidental that people will walk by but make up a really integral part of the fabric of our of our environment since I started sort of doing that project and telling these short fiction stories through that you know no walk from A to B is ever dull now the entire it's that exact thing of the world being a playground so for me i have to get out there i have to be a part of it i have to be in social groups and actually that really is what brings on the acceleration of ideas or an interesting new thought um, yeah. and i think that's why covid was destructive in a lot of ways but also product productive because it people were almost boxed in and and, and they encountered what it felt like to truly lose that for a short while which to to regain the stimulus that we didn't have anymore we had to be creative and you know that's ultimately what you know our name is but never dull and it might get shortened in a rebrand in the next couple of years i don't know but it's um that stems just from the like you know me and alex came from events and in events the audience is the champion you will think from the moment they set foot into a door you're thinking about how do they get the most from this experience how do you entertain them how do you give them you know how do you entertain first and sell second how do you make them feel come alive and I also and that's kind of what we've tried to put we try and put into our own work it's more about you know every single touch point of user experiences is an opportunity to give them more than what they think they maybe deserve or expect and I think in a in a world where everything is so hyper focused on you know clicks and shares and metrics and like how do you, you know how do you get someone seeing something the most amount of times rather than the value it gives them I feel like we've we've always been very focused to kind of what you were saying then about how do you create something that instills a, a memory that they will carry with them that they will then tell their friends about that it's not necessarily about getting the the biggest audience seeing it it's about getting the audience that do see it the best takeaway they can possibly get and sometimes we get that right sometimes it's a bit of a miss like anything we're we're like at the end of the day the, we we do things well but we're still human and we're still learning all the time. But I definitely think there's, you know, for us, it's about creating never dull experiences. It's about making sure that people, you know, the world is a playground. Like I look at stuff like fire hydrants and I'm just always imagining how you can make them look more interesting. And I think I, I, we take that approach quite a lot of our design work. It's kind of taking something as simple as 
you know, um, an auto reply from an email sign up. Well, how can you make this more interesting? How can you make it better? It's not always about like how do you deliver the best copy. Sometimes it's about how does the thing appear? How does it actually like pop up? What kind? What happens? Um, and I really like, and it's it's a bit of an unusual approach in today's world because everyone is very focused on oh, if you put in like ten thousand pounds behind this social content, it should be blah blah blah. It's all quantified. The world is like we we. The, I think. Um, uh, I can't remember what the comedian's called. He was talking about this. The Bobby Burning was saying this, that brands have worked out how to colonize your time. And that's all they do is they look at how they can colonize it by getting their thing in front of you as many times as possible. And it's not about the quality. It's about just making sure that the most amount of your day is taken up by their logo or their, their, their content. And it's such a paradoxical world we live in. It's such a, like a sad state of, you know, and I'm going to sound old here, but I'm, I do kind of semi-miss the time when it was like the early the early noughties and you just had like a Walkman and there wasn't social media. It was just like you'd go out into the world and you weren't bombarded constantly. Um, so I think me and Alex kind of take this. We do do so, you know, we do paid for social stuff. Like it is still, an asset, we're not, I'm not by any means saying it's not an important aspect to any marketing strategy. I think what I'm saying is it feels like we've hit a point in society where that's all people think they deserve. And I think we often try and take the stances, no, people deserve a lot more than that. Audiences deserve a lot more from brands than they're currently getting. So when we work with brands, a lot of what we do is we're strategically looking at what they're trying to create or do or their goals and objectives. And then we're going, right, that's awesome. We can help you with that, but let's make it better. Let's make it more than it can be because that's actually what audiences deserve and expect. Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right. And I think... The, you know, that's a whole other debate about social media. They're massive ups and massive downs, but but yeah, ultimately it's, it is. It's about the depth of experience and about what you leave somebody with. And you know, if it's too one side and it's all like you say about getting the brand seen and just being in someone's mind, it's not. It's a bit toxic that way, I think. And you know, and good design should get around that and seek to seek to push that. Yeah. And it's also if you look at any brand in history, the most successful brands recognize that and they do it. So. Back in the 90s, when everyone was investing in e-commerce and Apple invested heavily in their retail experience, like everyone was going on, like Amazon's coming, like, you know, everyone was focused on e-com because it was like, that's where all the money is. At that point, Steve Jobs went, no, we're going to turn all of our stores into learning centers, into places where people can, can meet and play and learn together and experience the latest technology. And because of that, in today's world, Apple have the most profitable per square foot retail outlets than any other brand in the world because they're worth their value of apple stores are worth more than any other brand in the world and to me that's a prime example that shows that if you invest in brand and ultimately creating memory for an audience rather than just awareness you will ultimately do become incredibly successful and you will make money obviously those things have to be implemented correctly you can't just do any old thing but i just think there's like you know like we goes back to what we talked about earlier humans are built to have human connection they're not built to just be on their own all the time on their phones like sat next to their partners just both scrolling endlessly for different stuff they're meant to be experiencing the world together so i think for us even when we're doing digital-led experience we're always just a bit like how can you bring people slightly closer together you might not get them talking or in face to face but you can still try and create a connection that goes deeper than just yep. here's this latest thing we're doing click now yeah. Well, I'll send you, I'm going to say, I'll send you, I'll email you. Uh, there's a really fascinating piece that I read as part of the research for 
the book that I'm writing, the Creative Conditions mm -hmm. titles is podcast. Um, and uh, one of the most recent podcasts I did with Professor Anna Abraham, who is a neuroscientist and psychologist who specializes in creativity. Fascinating stuff. And a piece that she'd flagged up on a, one of the podcasts she'd previously done was, it was Dr. Amy Isham and Tim, uh, I forgot his surname, John Jackson Johnson. Anyway, send you the piece. It's about flow states and uh, sustainability. Really interesting. Mm. So it's about the you know the experiences that don't cost a lot, where there's great engagement, whether it's conversation, uh, intimacy, uh, arts, workshops, social, social things, meets. You know that it's all about that. There's actually quite a low energy cost, fuel cost on those yeah. on those experiences. You actually hit up on it in your own background with all the outdoor experiences. Yeah, it's, it's it, but it's about that us entering flow with one another and having these autotelic responses that are just rewarding pure natural and just further our own creativity our, our belonging our place in the world and actually that they've got a real low impact on the environment too so it's about the piece was kind of exploring how we start that conversation in terms of restructuring society so that it's not about just going to the shopping center on a saturday afternoon or you know flying somewhere i don't know where you know you could go on forever yeah, it's, it's interesting because i think i made the point to you before the call which was you know would you rather have a hundred thousand people view your content for two seconds and then scroll on or maybe click on it or would you rather have ten thousand people engage in your digital or product activation whether it's offline or online and then maybe there's like you know ten thousand people and then but then they go off and they bring it up and they go because when was the last time you ever brought up a piece of social content that wasn't like a TikTok video of someone doing something really stupid? It's usually like, you know, a bit of advertisement content. You're not going to turn to your like, you might go, oh, this looks cool, but you're not going to go and actually like sell it in. But yeah. if you look at something like the Cadbury's um, Easter egg hunt on Google Maps like a few years ago, really amazing digital lead activation campaign. Um, something like that you're absolutely going to put into a whatsapp group with like 20 of your mates or you're going to actually like go back from a store experience or, or something and tell your partner oh, i went to this this was amazing and then they might google it and so on and i just think there's a, a, a lot of brands are doing this and the ones that are doing really well are doing this but there's a lot of brands that have got really caught up in the the match by really by marketeers on this like you know this metric kind of quantified thing where it's if you're not achieving certain kpis every month based on your ad spend, you're not doing well. And the best thing you touched on there is it doesn't have to be bloody expensive. Like yeah. I we are we are proof of this. Like we're we're not like we you know we're not bargaining, but ultimately yeah. there are brands that I think uh, the the creative industries has become incredibly commoditized into just being service offering. And it's kind of been cheapened as a result. But that's why as a result a lot of um agencies are trying are fighting really hard to keep their very inflated rates. Uh, or if they're not inflated, they're just finding it really hard to kind of convince clients that or, or persuade them that actually this idea is a really good idea because all brands focus on now is how much return on investment they're getting based off stats. Yeah. And human humans are not ones and zeros. You yeah. might have to you might have to qualify them, quantify them down to that, but they're they're not. They have aspirations, they have their own problems, and the best way to actually sort like um, create lasting experience and memory. Is to treat people like their people and actually get them into a room or engaging something that provides more than just i just i just yeah i just think there's we're in a weird state at the moment and i think there's agencies need to lead the way they need to be the ones that are you know championing that side of the creative process and output 
because then brands will naturally start to do that and then people will because you know we like designers impact everything like the creative industries impact everything it's true and it's exactly my problem with the education the exact same thing it's about quantification and about putting you know school league tables and and doing better than the school down the road based on exam results as opposed to hang on a minute are we not supposed to be preparing these humans for life after you know in in the real world in yeah. the, employment are we not supposed to be creating versatile adaptive happy people who are energized as opposed to you know ticking as many a stars boxes well, this is the, you know, this the thing i mean both we've just done some work with box park and like all fair to them they, they are really leading the way with this for me so they they hired us to come up with like um a a, a night to hold in there it's called a place called play box it's like their arcade room um at their wembley event and they wanted to try and get more like Gen Z millennials into that room, just just build the awareness around it because no one uses it. So we came up with um, a beer pong night because no one was doing anything interesting with beer pong. Like you know, you get bounce in London; they just kind of have a table that you play with. But we wanted to go a step further and create a really immersive, experiential event that had beer pong as the central format. So we created that. It got you know it it sold out. It, we only we only accommodate eight teams in the room and there's just the photos from the night it's just basically you know 50 people all screaming and like on each other's shoulders like throwing beer pong balls and all kinds of mad stuff um and for box park it wasn't about the return on investment because you're never going to get the money back from ticket sales it's about the reward that comes from having that many people in an environment making memories and then going off and telling their friends about it and then their friends going to box park and spreading the positive association of box park's name through kind of face-to-face -face contact um so like you know we don't specialize in we're not like we, it's one of the things we do but we're not like a, you know we're not an events company we're not a product we're not um, a product activation company but we try and take i said that same process that we did with the beer pong night uh, for box park with everything else we do it's like you know if all your value proposition to an audience is oh if you pay us this you get to access this it's like all right that's cool but then surely there's more to life than just a string of subscriptions and like services yeah of course of course and it's yeah it's to look at it so linear is kind of soul destroying and like you say there is a lot of that at the moment but it I can only go so far because at the end of the day we are human and we are emotive and we need more than that you know it's uh, also just trying to get things that I think this is why TikTok I think has been quite interesting because it it's raised the bar in regards to what people expect from social I think don't get me wrong, there's a lot of TikTok which is crap and it's just like it's a it's mindless kind of garbage and it kind of it's very addictive you get a lot of dopamine from it but it has raised the bar like other like meta etc really having to change up how they do things now because the quality of content people expect from social and the accuracy of what their interests are and how that's reflected has been hugely risen um and also just the reach side of it and actually TikTok being quite unbridled in terms of how much you can get seen so I think it, it was good as a disruptor, but I mean, for me, I just think there's, there is more to life than that clicks and shares. And actually the brand, the brands do need to start. It's an untapped market at the moment. There aren't many brands that are really weaponizing it other than like the Gymsharks of the world and stuff like that and the Nikes. But that doesn't mean like small and medium sized enterprise can't equally have the same impact as those brands. They just need to invest in it more than they probably invest in their um, social media spend. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And by the way, beer, I went to Hong Kong. I did a job in Hong Kong going back 2016, no, 17, and beer pong was massive. Yeah. 
it was awesome it was i mean i, I met up with a guy that i'd met once through a friend in, in oldham and he um he connected me with guy henry who moved to hong kong where his parents are from i think uh anyway henry met up with me and he's like we're gonna go out and play beer pong i've got loads of mates and and you just walk in and you know there's big names in the bars on the scene who were yeah. good and you can challenge him and it it just brought people together in this really awesome way you know we kind of tried to channel like so the, the whole brand of it so it's hotshotspong.com and uh, we've, we get a case study coming soon but the whole channeling of it was early noughties late 90s skate graphics it was all like sort of world industries and blind skate and stuff like that and it was kind of trying to go back to a time where it was simpler it was like you could use the event as escapism from the like the overwhelming set like the overwhelming amount of digital data of social media you can just go it's not about getting your phones out there are no rounds that require you to be on your phone at any point and it's just about engaging with the experience and the venue and the location and i honestly think that a lot of people are crying out for that everyone's fatigued off the back of covid everyone is fatigued with digital they're fatigued they're worn out they haven't got the mental capability anymore to manage the amount of content they're being forced down their throats um and i think it's like you know there used to be a thing that every brand should have like a social first like strategy and it should all be about like okay how would you get yourself on social and marketing on social and then think about how the brand sits within that um and i actually think it should be more about how do you get your brand engaging with people in the world in a human relatable memory invoking way and then let's build the brand around that and let's make the brand something that excites people and doesn't just make them think of oh they do like nice quirky social media content it's because you know Ryanair have like millions of followers because of a face talking on a plane but it doesn't I'm fine it's great for brand awareness but I'm sure there's probably more interesting ways Ryanair can engage with their customers yeah that lasts longer and also hopefully reminds the people at the top of that chain that they're human too and that they're you know that they're yeah. Their business can can do something beyond just make money that's a huge so we've just done some work with an estate agents and that was a massive thing for us it's like the estate agency world is full of kind of faceless corporations it's like the winks winkworths the foxtons of the world etc and people are very disillusioned with estate agencies because they just don't think they're there for them in any way so the work we've done has been about really trying to create a human-centric tone of voice because it they're an independent estate agents but that's a huge problem brands are facing is customer the the trust customers having brands these days is at an all-time low because they just don't think there's any people behind that big big sign and logo and i think that's a great way you can kind of break that down by creating more digital or in-person activations or card campaigns or identities because it makes people realize that you're speaking with someone not just at them um you know a lot of brands preach about community but to have a community it has to go both ways you've got to talk to each other um, it can't just be a customer talking at you and you just taking insights on board and then doing things with it. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, well, it sounds like you've already switched on, mate, and and um, everything we've discussed there just says to me that you're going to be uh, you're going to be successful, whatever that means for you guys. So, <laughs> oh, I guarantee I will have forgotten most of this after this call. My brain works <laughs> like like everything I was talking about then was obviously so in the moment. My brain just does that, and then like, after this call, my business partner Alex will be going, "Oh, so." What do you speak about? And I'd be like, there was something about what me living in the Lake District. I think it was something like that. But um, but no, I appreciate that, dude. I think it's you know early days still, but we're we've we're creating a lot of really great work at the moment. We're really happy with. I think it was a couple of years of trying to work out our position and what we actually wanted to be doing going forward. But I think I'm hopeful that it will just be kind of onwards and upwards. 
And, you know, we can kind of just continue to help brands reach the people they want to in nice ways because, you know, I got into design to help people as best I could. And it's a very commercialized world, but that doesn't mean we're not all human who can't have each other's backs. Yeah, 100%. Well, it's been a joy talking to you and it's going to be very valuable for the listeners. Yeah. No doubt about it. So I hope so. <laughs> and I hope you enjoy your well-earned rest over Christmas. Oh, I really appreciate it, I did. I hope you do as well. I hope you're um, enjoying your time out in your new um, your new location. Yeah, nice, great so far. Love it. I'm gonna. I'm about to buy a second-hand bike so I can play out more. <laughs> oh, so that, that's that's the uh, designer talking. That's just. Uh, I'll get second-hand bikes and go outside and do things. <laughs> you're not wrong. Uh, well, um, listen, I'd love to work with you down the road if something comes yeah up. definitely do i think there's always there's always opportunities i think we'll, we'll obviously we'll definitely stay in touch etc so i think there's um let's just see what what happens like i said we're we're really keen to grow and push things and push new ideas so hopefully if the plan goes accordingly we'll be able to get lots of influx of business and then just nice. work with people thank you very much to ben Mottershead for taking the time to step out of his wonderful work at studio bnd but never dull do go and check out these guys. They're doing some fantastic work at the minute and Ben talks quite prominently and prolifically around creativity and the arts and the creative industry and design and it's really great stuff. Well worth a follow. Go and have a look at what they're up to. Thank you also to the supporting founder of the show, Illustration X. You can check out their global array of illustration and animation portfolios and get the inside scoop in their news section on all of the great work they're doing. Hit them up on social media at we are illustration x uh hit me up at ben talon if you want to chat on social come and get involved in any conversations i'm having uh join me on linkedin i'm quite prominent on there these days or drop me an email hello at bentallon.com thank you as ever for listening i do appreciate the support for the show there's so much coming up we've got dancers we've got ex editors of gq and loaded we've got Conversations centering around addiction and springboarding of that particular adversity. Uh, we've got judo and fight mentality and flow states. Really are covering all bases coming up and we're going to have, of course, the originals, the cores, the illustrators, the designers, plenty of them guys coming up too. So thank you again, guys. Have a wonderful week. Spread the word. Drop us a review. Um, subscriptions are very valuable. I'm going to set up a Patreon soon so you can chuck in a quid or so here and there. I don't know what that's going to look like at this stage, but it's something I want to do to try and push the show further. Thank you. Take care. See you very soon.